This week, with the COVID-19 pandemic plunging the world into uncertainty, I chat with broadcasters Chris Fowler and Joe Buck about the virus's impact on sports. From the NFL to college football to tennis, the duo discusses when games might return and how soon fans will pack the stands. First up, ESPN veteran play-by-play announcer Chris Fowler. How did you first realize what was about to happen? Well, it was no bolts of lightning. I was in Australia covering the tennis when the outbreak happened in China and word got out and I was seeing Asian people walking around the streets wearing masks, which at the time and at that place seemed out of place. But when I arrived back in the States early February from Australia into LAX and I saw plane loads of people wearing masks, it was pretty evident that it was something was going on in a part of the world that was in danger of coming here. But I wish I'd known more sooner because we all would have altered our behavior and wouldn't be in as dire a mess as we are had we realized it quicker. What was the point where you really realized it was going to impact the way of life here? Well, the NBA tests, when all of a sudden, um, you know, the New Orleans-Oklahoma City game tests came back positive, um, that was a huge wake-up call. You knew that there was going to be an equation changer. The first event I was scheduled to cover that shut down was Indian Wells Tennis. It had a couple of patients affected in the Coachella Valley. A large part of the fans at that event are in the danger age group. And they made the decision right there to cancel the tournament. At the time, a lot of people thought that was an overreaction. And I put out a video saying, let's hope it's an overreaction. That'd be best case scenario. As it turned out, it wasn't an overreaction at all. It was the appropriate move. And it was the first of obviously countless other cancellations. But that was the first event that I was scheduled to be a part of, and you realize that you hadn't heard much about California being a hot spot, but it was enough to shut it down. And after that, a lot of events followed suit. Right, because we spoke uh, ahead of my taping in Serbia with Novak Djokovic. Hopped on a plane from Serbia to Indian Wells only to, upon arrival, or you know, a day or two thereafter, find out yeah. it was canceled. Yeah, then the tennis players were part of the early group that said, you know what, we're shutting it down. They decided to sort of end mass before Miami had even made an announcement. That was the next event on the calendar after Indian Wells. They said, no, no, we're, we're out. We're not going to hang on and then maybe go to Miami and see what's up there. They decided to pull the plug. And then very soon after that, the tours announced they were going to shut down the season um, for, for a period of time. At that point, it was, I think, six weeks. And now it's become obviously much longer, much longer than that. How do you see this impacting tennis in the short term? Well, when Wimbledon was canceled, not postponed, but canceled because the All England Club has an insurance policy that they could afford to take out that not many events can afford to take out, they were buffered against losing an entire tournament. Didn't make sense to them to push it back later in the summer. There's still so much uncertainty about what the condition is going to be like in England later in the summer. And so they decided to just cancel it. Uh, that was a shockwave for the tennis world. And then it became obvious that the U.S. Open was the next hope for staging the event. And you have to wonder what's gonna happen with that big domino because they're being advised by some people that you cannot hope to stage a Grand Slam event in New York in late August to a normal scale. If you wanna have a chance at having an event that makes sense, that's safer, that's viable, you need to reduce the field, you need to reduce the number of courts involved, the number of people involved, shrink the footprint in all ways. They're reluctant to do that, as any major event would be, because it doesn't feel like a grand slam if it's not the same scale. 
but in the interest of having a tournament and trying to salvage some revenues, those conversations go on. But yeah, tennis being a global sport, but based largely in Europe, which has obviously been hammered by the virus, is affected as much as anything. What do you think happens on the U.S. Open front? Impossible to predict. I think you're going to have voices on both sides of that question. Some saying it's completely imprudent and unrealistic. Some saying, well, what if we did this and this? But again, things are changing quickly. They've been changing for the better in New York in that the numbers aren't quite as tragic lately as people fear they might be. And I would say that they've got a little time on their sides, that they can wait until May to try to figure things out. But there, there's so many layers to a staging an event as big as the U.S. Open. There's the spectator event, the staff event, the player event. Our player is going to feel like, are they going to be allowed to travel back into North America and prepare for the tournament the way they would like to? Or will transatlantic travel restrictions perhaps still be in place? Will they feel safe leaving their homes to put themselves in what has been obviously a global hotspot for this disease? So it's very complicated. Um, my sense is a lot of players would show up, but what kind of scale event is realistic to have in New York? They're talking about that, but no one knows the answer as we speak. It is impressive that Wimbledon, I guess, has a $2 million pandemic insurance policy that, you know, was able to pay out, uh, what, $141 million when they made the decision? To I don't know the figures, yeah. but I mean, again, those kinds of policies that cover all sorts of force majeure are very expensive to take right. out. I'm told the U.S. Open has no such policy. Roland Garros has no such policy. Obviously, we know that pro sports seasons are not insured against this. Wimbledon has an almost unlimited cash flow, and they have been interrupted twice in their history by world wars. So they shut down for World War I, and in World War II, Wimbledon shut down and bombs hit center court. And they didn't play for five years. So that, that event has only been shut down by world wars until now, which tells you the scale of the problem of this virus. You obviously are the lead, uh, you know, play-by-play -play commentator for Espen on the college uh, football front, and you've been talking to, you know, different people, you know, in the industry. Your thoughts on what happens on that front? Well, college football is one of the most complicated sports to imagine getting up and running. It's far more layered than the NFL. It's far more complicated for a number of reasons. No central control, unlike the NFL. Uh, the NFL agendas are much more closely aligned than in college. Revenues are distributed. The playing field is designed to be more level. College football is totally opposite. And so when you try to get 130 FBS schools in all the states, all the municipalities involved, and getting them back on the same page is extremely complicated. There are three scenarios being talked about by the people who are preparing for it. These are not the deciders. The decision makers are going to be governors and mayors and all sorts of health folks at the local and state level. That's who shut things down. That's who closed the valve. And I'm told that's who's going to turn it back on. So imagine all those different entities coming to the same place by May, when you have to make the decision whether or not the season can start on time on August 29th. That just seems unlikely to me. Scenario one, uninterrupted normal season. Scenario two, you play in the fall, but you shorten it and you somehow modify the postseason, and you try to get the football in in that normal window, but somehow with a modified schedule. Option three, 
which seems radical and bizarre and fraught with problems, is to play in the spring. But that might be, Graham, the prudent course in the minds of a lot of people to still get that season in in the academic year of 2021 and preserve those essential football TV revenues and ticket sales revenues, which are, are absolutely essential to the operation of college athletics. You take football off the table and there's going to be a sea of red ink and some athletic programs will be severely hurt, if not permanently hurt. Um, I'm told that even some power of five football programs would be in danger. That might be a bit alarmist, but I don't know the particulars of their finances. So it, as, as problematic and as weird as that would feel to play football beginning perhaps February, March, April, May, that might be the only way if it's deemed imprudent to begin on time in the fall. And then there's a whole thing we haven't even talked about yet, which is the, the optics and the morality of this. It's an unpaid workforce in college football, and that's a big reason why it's more complicated than the NFL. If it's not safe for regular students to go back to campus, if they're going to hold the semester online, that you're going to ask players to come back on campus in some form, and be quarantined, but go out and perform so the cash cow can keep rolling. And that's deeply offensive to a lot of people and unrealistic to others. What do you think the right decision is at this point? Well, again, you can't make a, you can't make a decision right now because you don't have the information. If I had to bet, I would say they'll try to salvage the season after the new year. But again, that's just sitting here in the moment without essential information that has to be had before you can make that decision. How do you think this changes spectator attendance at games or events, both short-term and long-term? Well, it changes it short-term differently than it changes it long-term. Hopefully, no matter how traumatic this experience is and how much our lives have been shaken up, um, over time, people will return to what has been the norm, what feels comfortable. There's gonna be a new normal, of course. I think it'll change some people forever. What percentage? I don't know. I've seen surveys indicating that perhaps half or just over half the people at this moment where we are right now would feel very uncomfortable going back in stadiums for sporting events this summer. And I can understand why. You've been told, you've told a lot of things, a lot of conflicting things as this has evolved. So it's been confusing for people. How are you going to go from where we are now to suddenly the all clear, let's pack the stadium? I don't think that's the way it's going to unfold. I, I think that the people in one part of the country are not on the same page as the other to answer your question. I mean, there's people who are college football fans. I don't care if you said the Black Plague and seven other diseases you're likely to get. They'll go back in the stadium and watch the game because that's what they do. And it's that important to them. But sometimes people don't always know what's best for them. I mean, it's not going to be their decision ultimately. It's going to be a, a much more collective uh, decision, not based on emotions and how badly we want football. We all want football. You don't think I want to get back in the booth? I'm extremely hopeful. But hope without facts and the truth is not a strategy. It's a terrible strategy. And that's what, in large part, got us into this mess. So you have to have the facts on your side. And only the experts can give their best guess about what, a prudent course of action is. To what extent do you think we see empty venues for a while? I, I mean, in terms of well, the, the, the play going the, on here's without the, spectators. Here's the question that has to be answered. Is TV revenue so important and essential that we will get back to playing regardless whether or not fans are in the stadiums? 
the Premier League in England believes that it is. Those TV dollars, you take them away, that a sizable chunk of the teams in that league will not make it financially. So I, my understanding is they've made the decision to play in empty stadiums, if need be, for television. And the feeling is that having Premier League games on TV, and that, that is maybe even more a part of the fabric of that country than American football is here. That's hard to imagine, but I think it's, I think it's probably true. That would be exactly what the country needs to feel like at least we're taking steps back towards normal. And have those soccer games on TV would be very important nationally. Now, if that same decision is made here regarding pro football with empty stadiums, they might, they might take that step to do that. College is much more complicated. A big chunk of revenues in college comes from the live gate and the donations that are tied to tickets and suites. Way bigger chunk in college than the NFL. The NFL is heavily weighted towards television money. So that might influence that decision. But, you know, yeah, playing in empty stadiums is certainly a possibility. How long before you think we see a full college football stadium? Some places will be full. Uh, but I think, there'll be, I think there'll be a lot of people justifiably spooked by this. How many? Who knows? I, I have no sense of that because, you know, when you're in quarantine, you're not out among people. So I, I don't know. I know from comments on social media that the climate is very different when you ask people from different states because they've been affected differently at this point. And I think you're going to have, uh, I mean, already there's been more social distancing in college football stadiums in recent years than there has been in the past. Attendance has been declining as people have chosen to experience the game in other ways. So I, I, think, I think most people in the sport are preparing for best case scenario, 20, 25% hit, best case scenario could be much, much worse than that. Just on the humanity front, I mean, you and your wife, Jen, obviously spend a ton of time in New York. Your reaction to what's been going on there? Horror, heartbreak. City I've lived in off and on for a long time. We were there at the beginning of it. You watch it shut down. You see New York cease to be New York because without anywhere to go and anything to do, it's the husk of a city that is empty. And you look out the window of your apartment and there's a daily reminder of how changed things are and how grim things are. And, you know, New York is a city built on coming together. And that's why it was so dangerous in the stages before they shut it down. That's why the contagion spread so quickly. New York, you know, economically could really be scarred and changed for a long, long, long time by this. How does this compare for you to the impact you saw New York take post 9-11? Very different impact, very different kind of tragedy. Um, once the initial panic uh, wore off after September 11th, the city was unified. Coming together was the point. Being around each other, grieving collectively, mourning collectively, trying to get back to work, get on your feet as fast as possible collectively. The emotions of you know, Giants and Jets games, Yankee Stadium, which sports fans will remember, the galvanizing, unifying effect of that. This has been a slow motion hurricane, hunkering down, waiting the outer bands hitting, everybody bracing for the center of the storm, and then dissipating on the backside, and the outer bands maybe felt for a long time. So I think it feels very different. This cannot be unifying just by, by nature. So when it comes back together, and when there is some return to being able to gather safely, there'll be an enormous sense of joy and relief. And I think that will be a sweet thing. 
whether it's football season as we know it, whether it's football season later or something else, when that happens, Graham, everybody's perspective having been changed permanently, I think it'll be an enormous sense of celebration. But man, it feels like that's not immediate at this point. If somebody's watching this who's down on their luck, feeling overly pessimistic, um, what would you say that would provide hope? Take it moment by moment. Take a few deep breaths, gather yourself, and realize that fearing for the future, fearing things that might happen, is not a successful strategy. It's human nature at times. It's hard to block that out. But all we can do is live in the moment. If you can get through today economically and get through tomorrow and the next day, it's the same way as managing any traumatic situation, whether it's hardship or grief. You can only do a moment at a time. Look for supportive people. Hopefully that people are not out there doing this by themselves. It's much harder to do that. But there is hope and there is certainty that we will get through this collectively. Lives will be changed. Livelihoods will be changed. No doubt about that. I'm not trying to be glib or spoon out popular psychology, but I really do believe that being in the moment and gaining strength from what you can do day by day to get through it is the only way. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Now to Joe Buck, who is hunkered down with his family in St. Louis. The Fox broadcaster awaits a decision for Major League Baseball on when a potential return to the field might happen. How's shelter and home going? Well, I mean, I, I saw something online today with somebody that I really respect who said, if I hear one more person say, I'm so bored, I'm going to lose it. Um, I'm not going to be dumb enough to say that. You know, everybody right now with all that's going on in the world and in this country and, you know, healthcare workers being on the front line, you know, we should all be so lucky to be quote unquote bored. Um, I've got twin two-year-old boys, uh, my daughters, who one lives in New York, one lives in L.A., both are back in St. Louis. So if there is a small silver lining to any of this is we've all been together probably more now than we've been in a long time. A lot of family dinners, a lot of my boys and their sisters interacting. I mean, that stuff's all been amazing. It's just, you know, such a frightening time in our world that, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to take delight really in anything right now. With coronavirus, um, your just general reaction to everything going on and it can be completely unrelated to sport even it's testing every bit of my mental capacity because i'm i i understand why we are all where we are to try and slow down the spread of this virus but at some point we're all going to emerge from these homes and social distancing is is going to be a thing of the past and then i unless I'm crazy, I, I feel like it's going to ramp back up again and then it'll kind of die back down and it'll ramp back up. I don't think, I think there will be more than one wave of this. And the question I have is, you know, can that second wave somehow be pushed back to a time when there's uh, uh, some sort of an antidote to this or a vaccine? I don't know. Um, if you want to relate it to sports, I mean, it, on one hand, it makes you realize how insignificant sports are and sports results and people living and dying with their team's fortunes. Now, people are living and dying with this virus. On the other hand, it reminds, I think, everybody, not everybody's a sports fan, 
but sports are a huge part of American life. And so while I would typically be off this time of the season anyway, I just miss it as a fan, being able to plop down on the couch or having something on in the background. It's very soothing. Along those lines, I think we will get back this year, this summer, later in the summer, but I fully expect that it will be with empty stadiums, at least at the beginning, and, and we will see these events take place with nobody in the stands. But, uh, man, when that first crack of the bat or that first goal or that first made basket or whatever it is is going to really, I think, be a welcome sound, a great relief, and it'll let us all know that we're kind of back on the road to normalcy. Your dad, the legendary broadcaster, uh, Jack, gave that, read that powerful poem after, you know, 9-11. And to, to what extent do you think sports will similarly serve as kind of a unifying force when they get back this go around? Yeah, I think I think back to that. And man, I, you know, again, not everybody's a baseball fan, but it, it's known as the American pastime. And I, I think that's what it was uh, more than anything that people came back in and it was like, it just feels good to be back here watching these guys play baseball. And so it served a real role that year in the baseball postseason. The President Bush took politics straight out of it. But when he walked out there as President of the United States, love him, hate him, whatever, and he fired a strike from the pitching rubber, there was a, there was a feeling of strength behind that. And it, it's one of the biggest moments I've ever witnessed firsthand. And then the World Series on top of that was a seven-game crazy great World Series. So sports can – while it's dismissed by a lot, I think really serve a role going forward uh, when life kind of returns to, to somewhat normal. How do you see it impacting the NFL? I don't know. I mean, they, they seem like they're, they want to come out and say, we're going to do it. We're going to plow ahead. We're going to have our draft. We're going we're gonna to start the season on time. Or we're going to start the season on time with fans. I, d I just don't know how you can make any proclamations at this point. I feel like, you know, if you believe the medical experts, that we are on the, the beginning initial part of this really heavy hit wave coming and who knows what the fallout is after that. But at some point, this will be behind us. At some point, it'll get back to normal. I just don't know how all of this looks coming up into the late summer, early fall of 2020. What makes you feel confident that when games finally come back, they'll likely be without fans. I just think if, if the push is to get some sort of normal life going again, the idea of people sitting within literally inches of one another packed into a stadium or an arena in a small confined space is a tough sell to me as we sit here now. I feel like my mood on this, my outlook on this, my opinions on this change by the hour let alone, you know, to me, the middle of June seems like five years from now with the way this roller coaster has been going. So who knows? I feel like we're going to play later in the summer and it's going to be without fans. But I don't know. Check with me in two weeks. Check with me in a month. Maybe I'll feel entirely different. But I, I, that's how I feel at this point. Whether Major League Baseball or the NFL, to what extent do you wonder when there are fans at games how that even works with either reducing capacity or just underlying social anxiety that the shelter at home has created and people's 
concern about sitting next to one another? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's kind of, it's a bigger deal than it was after 9-11, but I sure as heck remember back in 2001, driving down Highway 40 from my house uh, to Bush Stadium, going down to do a TV game for the Cardinals and thinking, man, we're going back into a stadium. You know, we just had these two huge buildings knocked down and you felt vulnerable. And I think on some level, you know, when people start coming back in, you know, whether it's at the grocery store or it's at Yankee Stadium or it's on an airplane or wherever it is, these are all just parts of, of our lives. Um, I think it's there's going to be some sort of hesitance to uh, to get real close to somebody you don't know. And, and that's too bad because I think in the end, you know, we all kind of crave human interaction. And when somebody now walks through the door or somebody delivers something that's been ordered, it's almost like you want to reach out and go, hey, how you doing? You know, it's almost brought it, brought it back to kind of like we're, we're looking for Andy Griffith somewhere and we're all like in this big town where you just want to lift the other person up. That's how I feel. And I imagine that's how you feel and most people do. What's the Buck household like with two young kids? It's hectic. Um, you know, I, the math is not in my favor any way you uh, cut it up. I'm about to turn 51. They're about to turn two. Uh, I guess there are crazier stories out there. I know there are crazier stories out there, but uh, two feels like, not years, I mean, two kids feels like there's four of them running around. And it takes my wife and, uh, and me really running out of all of our energy by about seven o'clock at night, just corralling these two. They're fun. They're funny. It's exciting to watch them grow. Um, but it's, it's a lot in a confined area. Thank God the weather's turned here in the Midwest so we can get outside and do walks and swing and do whatever. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a test of our patience. But again, I mean, we're, we're lucky to this point that Nobody inside this house has uh, come down with this. You've mentioned uh, you have two uh, older daughters, so you've done the young kid fatherhood thing once, but you're now uh, older. Um, and also first time boys. How, how much different this go around having young kids? It feels a lot like the first time. I mean, I, I can tell you that, you know, I, from all the older dads that got into it late in life, or did it again. I, I hear a lot of stories of, man, I, you know, I just enjoyed it so much more the second time around. Uh, and I don't, I don't totally feel that way because I feel like I really enjoyed the hell out of it the first time around. And my, my life and my job really lends itself toward a lot of family time. I mean, people see me when I'm gone and they know that on the weekends I'm doing a game somewhere, or October it's crazy or whatever it may be. But when I'm home, I'm not a nine to five guy. I'm not, I'm not out of the door at seven o'clock in the morning and back at seven at night. I'm here. So I, I always have had a lot of time with my kids and I, I don't regret the way I did it the first time around. And I'm doing it kind of the same way this time around, just as an older guy. So it, it feels very similar. And to see those four people interact, my girls and then now my little boys, is, is easily the most uh, gratifying, heartwarming, uplifting experience in my life. And, and so to that, it, it's been 
amazing that this has all transpired the way it has. And we just did an episode taping with uh, Tony Romo, and you know he kind of points out people don't recognize this, but uh, a large portion of why he decided to get into broadcasting as opposed to continuing in, in football were the hours and the the opportunity that gives him to be with his young kids as they're growing up. Yeah, and let's be honest, for him to hit balls on a golf range. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, for Tony, yeah, he found that out. He and I talked a long time one night down in Mexico when he was he was being heavily pursued by the Cleveland Browns. And he knew he was done with Dallas. He was out. And the Browns were trying to bring him back in. And uh, I was torn as, as I talked to him. I said, you know, they're willing to really overpay you to come play quarterback. Uh, you're probably not going to make that kind of money as a broadcaster. Now here we are, <laughs> you know, a handful of years later. And uh, I couldn't have been more wrong. But um, I, I think obviously it's better on the body talking about it than getting hit by a linebacker uh, coming through the middle on a blitz. But uh, it is it is a great life, and uh, I've been doing it my entire life. And I it, it's I just don't see me doing anything else anytime soon. And I've enjoyed literally every second of it. Yeah, I, and I want to wrap with this um, because it puts a smile on my face every time I see you post one. I, I was watching a. a broadcaster do it in Europe. I, I have seen uh, your uh, hilarious calls. Uh, how, how did you get the idea for the quarantine calls? Talking with my boss, he was he kind of threw it at me, I think, uh, as a joke. And then we both stopped and thought about it. And uh, so it was his initial idea. And I will only take credit in that I was insistent on not doing viral moments. Like it, that seems so self-serving. I said, well, let's just involve people and get everyday mundane things and I'll try to do play by play of it. And, and I love doing that. I probably think that way uh, as, as I'm going through life, I see things and I'm probably thinking of it as a play by play announcer. And so whether it's some guy making chicken wings on his grill or two dogs fighting over a stick or whatever it is, you know, there's there's been over 11 million views of those things, and that tells me that it filled a need, and there was a void there, and, and people liked them. And also, anybody's video, I think that you pick, you encourage them to make a, a you know donation to support uh, everything that's going on right now, and those really uh, affected. Um, did I read somewhere that somebody sent you a sex tape? Yeah, that was so overblown. It was nothing. Uh, I made a joke on a morning show and saying, well, it just shows you how pe one person takes it and then it just just balloons. So no, I, I mean, I'm not going to say publicly that, that that would be, you know, such a horrible thing. I, I don't know. I'm not getting no. I'm not getting anybody's sex tapes. I don't know that you can even send those over Twitter. Uh, but you would do play-by-play -play on it, perhaps a blurred-out version, if uh, somebody sent one. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that'll be that'll be for later in my life uh, when I'm fired and I'm sitting here with nothing to do. Maybe that'll be a way that I can earn a check, uh, but not now. <laughs> Got it. Well, um, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate you making the time for uh, the occasional chat and the uh, also the. Uh, occasional uh, part-time guest booking efforts for our show. It's uh, always much you appreciated. Got it. Of course, Graham. Good to talk to you. Good to see you. Stay safe.
Thanks for listening to my chats with ESPN's Chris Fowler and Fox's Joe Buck. To help out your local food banks during this difficult time, head to feedingamerica.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.